everyone, and welcome to the Jessica Jones Podcast by Fantastic Geek, the official, unofficial voice of the Marvel Cinematic Community. My name is Matt, and joining me, as always, is Pete. Hi, Pete. Pete? Oh, sorry, Matt. I had my headphones in. I was making you a party mix. Jessica Jones, episode 104, a.k.a. 99 Friends, is brought to you by Cello Lessons by Claire. We'll play for two days straight, no mistakes, a lot better than some of those other acts out there like Carlo Lies and his wandering penis. Am I right? Wow. Well, Pete... Uh, I guess moving from that treat, we'll quickly mention that this being the podcast for episode 104, later on in the podcast, uh, the first of three Jessica Jones comic giveaways uh, will be happening. That for uh, that for uh, the people who have uh, given us a review on iTunes, so stay tuned for that. But first, Pete, it's time for some surveillance. What did we see in the episode? Fifth Ave and Bryant Park subway exit, Matt, and just a whole lot of people there. Yeah, I really enjoyed this episode. It's kind of a ghostly opening shot where people are coming off the subway. uh, And then we cut to the reverse with uh, Jessica at the same spot, watching to see if she can find her tracker. Yeah, and that concept here that one word, one suggestion, whatever it is, you know, they could be following photographers. Uh, photographing, <laughs> photographing her um, and and trying not to get caught that it's all coming down to the game of cat and mouse that Kilgrave is playing with her right now and that her spy had no distractions, just one focus on her. Thankfully, not to Luke at this point. And it's only through her narration that we we see that Jessica is a more fully formed person than the world sees between her alcoholism and her brutality. And Pete, that's a great point. There are certainly people in general who view the, the use of narration in film and TV as as the lazy writer's way out. Uh, the fact that we're dealing, though, with this detective story here, this private eye, uh, it fits into that kind of film noir milieu of uh, of that you know that that uh, detective narrating his or her own story, um, and it is insight to a character who's very very walled off uh, from everyone except for herself. And with that narration, we get into her head. So it certainly uh, certainly hits many points there. With her belief that Luke should be safe, not only given her affection for him, but his gifts as well. Her phone rings, and it is one Audrey Eastman, who we then see her shoes, and there's also a shot that languishes on her bag here, clearly a woman of some means, that she's early, that she uh, wanted to get this over with. All the while, Malcolm, which has resonance come the end of this episode, is in the hallway there. Yeah, it's... uh... This scene and the scene that's about to, to occur where where Audrey explains why she uh, has come all the way to Alias Investigations, uh, it, it's a scene that is trying uh, – both scenes, rather, are trying to play off the addition of little um, – not quite hints, but little little sticking points for future use. Uh, again, kind of the, the omnipresence of Malcolm um, and, and also the mystery of him, or at least insofar as 
uh, and as has been mentioned before in this podcast, you know, the fact that he's got a shadowy background um, and, and a background that is not kind of, uh, you know, wasn't publicly discussed during all the press stuff and all of that. Um, we kind of get a little little reminder there, a little, little snippet of him. And as you mentioned, Pete, uh, the purse as well, the the story trying to make a point to say, let's let's remember this purse without saying remember this purse. And I think maybe they, they push it one little second too much. Um, but of course, it, it's quick nonetheless, because Audrey has some explaining to do. Yes, her divorce lawyer, uh, Desmond Toby, who works at Hogarth, Chow and Benowitz, had referred her to Jessica Jones and uh, her hope that Jess is as good as he advertised. Um, her wondering if the sign is just for show or it's actually an office and referring to uh, Malcolm as a man who was attempting to get into his apartment for like five minutes. So uh, nice building you got here. <laughs> the the contrast between Audrey, who clearly is a woman of some means, a woman of uh, Manhattan society, at least to to a certain degree, um, and you know that that contrasts so nicely with Jessica's uh, you know obvious leather jacket and jeans and boots uh, aesthetic. And then I love where it pivots and she goes over. She's she's shown a softer side to Malcolm a couple times, but the way that she left him last time at the hospital. Um, she asks here, are you good? He, he asks, do you care? Um, and says that he doesn't need a reason to get high. Something else that, that jumped out at me in this, uh, you know, again, kind of these, these two scenes, one in the hallway, one back in the, in the office was the notion that Audrey wants to get proof so that her husband doesn't get any alimony from her. Uh, a bit of a flip on the, uh, you know, the traditional uh, breadwinner dynamic. But uh, again, you know, the product of uh, a lot of great women making this television show. And probably there was a discussion to say, hey, let's let's flip this around here or, or let's at least uh, let's get with the times, man. And just as in the real world, it, it's not always just in one direction that this kind of stuff happens but she's concerned her husband carlo here has been running around he sneaks into bed at three o'clock in the morning um and then i thought a little over the top matt in terms of the dialogue from a thematic standpoint some people can't keep their lives in check they go along blindly ruining lives of everyone in their path and doubly so toward the end of the episode when we get the reveal on Art Audrey and Carlo. I thought it just a little over the top, but that's only saying how well written from a dialogue standpoint this show has been into four episodes. I definitely agree. And I think that uh, it is to the benefit of the season that we kind of um, – we focus on a new case in this episode. Uh, obviously, there's the ongoing story and all of that, but I appreciated, say, contrasting this with uh, with Daredevil, where what's the Daredevil episode where they're trying to get the practice off the ground? Meanwhile, Kingpin is up to no good. Like, that's kind of every episode. Um, I like that here we can say we're leaving the hope story on pause for right now. Where There's a new case. There's new mysteries and that sort of thing. Um 
so the the idea of this episode is a wonderful one, particularly in that it gives us something a little bit different for the for the season. That said, there are these moments in this episode where what has been a plus writing, maybe it's kind of a couple of A minus or B plus moments. This being one, totally agree that it's over the top. A couple others that I'll mention along the way, but but please, dear listener, don't don't confuse the. Uh, the A minus moments with uh, with a conclusion that this is anything less than a super solid episode. Uh, Jess is told that um, she needs to catch Carlo in flagrante, a little Latin there in the act um, that he's meeting a client Friday night. But uh, Audrey's already done her homework. The assistant knows nothing about it, that she's to follow them. And uh, when she gets the pics. Jessica tells her that uh, these are um, hard to look at and they're harder to forget. But that's what Audrey pays her shrink for. <laughs> Certainly an answer for everything. And uh, Jessica double checking that Audrey hasn't spoken with a British man uh, yeah. or anyone that is a well-dressed British man in particular. <laughs> You know, it's it's New York City. There's plenty of British men running around, some of them not so so well dressed. Um, but standard contract here, fifty percent up front. You know, Audrey initially had some concerns given the state of the apartment slash office, whether she would still be in business uh by the time that this is concluded. But uh business concluded here. We talked to Trish over the phone. Indeed, Pete. And I will admit uh, an interesting twist here. Now, now, obviously, no surprise to see more of uh, of Officer Simpson here. I mean, he, the, the the actor is credited in the in the credits for goodness' sake as a, as a series regular. But uh, I didn't expect to see him again so soon. We have two cops at the door. One is Simpson. One is presumably his partner. Um, and you know, Trish calling Jessica as you mentioned. Trish goes to her safe room while Jessica makes her way on over. And Pete, again, kind of this low-tech, lo-fi approach to Jessica's powers. Fun shot of her just kind of coming up the balcony wall because she's done a, uh, a a leap partway up a tall building with a single bound. Yeah, and interesting, you know, the other cop repeatedly refers to Will Simpson as Sarge. So there's obviously a difference in rank, but taking the ram and attempting to bust down the door it's a reinforced security door so uh not getting in there and to have this confrontation that uh simpson is still under the belief that he killed trish walker um that this other cop is there and we get and you know to to contrast the poor dialogue from Audrey in the previous scene, we get good, quick, revealing dialogue here, you know, apart from the the joke that uh, Jess says, oh, we had our headphones in making a party mix, but um, that the other cop was a really big fan of Trish back in the day. It's Patsy, really want to be your friend. Oops, yeah, sweet, thanks for watching. <laughs> <laughs> um. Pete, I appreciate that you caught the detail that uh, Simpson has the rank of sergeant. Uh, a, a quick Wikipedia search, or uh, pardon me, uh, Google search rather. I know, uh, I know, Pete, you're not a fan of the uh, Wikipedia. Head um, shaking. But a uh, a quick search reveals that uh, NYPD ranks after cadet are uh, probationary police officer, police officer, then three grades of detective, then sergeant. 
Uh, I mentioned this because um, it speaks to the fact that Will is higher up on the food chain than your standard, you know, your standard officer than your standard detective. Um, Which and- we get a little bit more of as this scene transitions. He explains eight years of special ops. So this is not your garden variety cop. Um, coupled that with the guilt-wracked nature of Will Simpson right now. And we, uh, in less than an episode of uh, this actor finally showing up in the series, have a fully compelling character with motivation. Pete, with uh, with uh, Sergeant Simpson now alone, uh, at least alone from his, uh, from his par- well, I'm presuming it's his partner there, certainly his colleague, um, Simpson says uh, to Trish that he is a monster. Uh, Jessica takes him out and says the best thing he can do is stay away. Again, he's a series regular, so I'm going to guess maybe not. <laughs> he's not going to listen. <laughs> um, and explaining the Sufentanil, so now uh, each character is in possession of that knowledge, why Trish appeared dead, but he admits that he has done things in the line of duty he never wanted to, but uh, never having killed an innocent woman or thinking he killed an innocent woman. And, you know, this is the first time he hears about Kilgrave, um, but she advises him to go home, sleep it off. And uh, with with the notion that she will take care of it, I like how, uh, I like how willing he is to start to trust her. Um, clearly, they're both kind of damaged people. Uh, clearly, they're both kind of in on this this awful secret, um, and and I like his his level of trust there. And in the next scene, we see uh, Trish uh, trusting Jessica, or at least the effects of Trish trusting trusting Jessica. She's on her radio show. She's apologizing for questioning such a powerful man who deserves respect. She apologizes again. She asks for forgiveness. And the question that we are left with is, will that take him or take her off his hit list? It's such an over-the-top appeal to his machismo, you know, refers to him specifically as fascinating. Probably fed a lot of this stuff by Jessica from things she was either made to say or made to think. But the result of this apology is that Tris says she needs a shower. Um and Jess here being the sounding board, reminding her, well, just saying it doesn't make it true. Uh, you know, remember acting. And we hear about an award here that uh, Trish might have had some help in earning from indeed, mom. Indeed, Pete. Uh, we won't go into it blow by blow by blow. But the notion that mom, shall we say, influenced half of the jury uh, is certainly floated and I love, Pete, how there's this slow rollout to Trish's backstory, um, you know, having having heard a little bit about it, the one-sentence summary about it in the press uh, stuff and the official synopsis and that sort of thing. I won't get into it here in part because I want to I honor the spirit of uh, being as, as spoiler-free as possible, um, but, but I love this slow rollout. And again, we kind of have this, um, this shot taken at Trish's mom by Trish. And uh, certainly not the first time and certainly the most, uh, shall we say, casually crass way in which she has referred to her mother. Pete, I'm starting to think that Trish is not a big fan of her mom. (laughs) But what breaks up this before it could become laborsome is somebody down the street taking pictures and just now 
breaking the news to Trish that Kilgraze has had her under surveillance. There's also, Pete, in this scene, a reference made to men and power yes. and a superpower man. I don't know if they were trying to do a little, like, they want to say Superman, but don't want to quite cross that line, or, <laughs> or if it was just more of this direct reference of the superpowers of Kilgrave. Well, the um, discussion that power was a disease against uh, of men, and it's an interesting aspect to consider, again, a, a largely female cast and... Uh, written and produced show so thematic statement is fair game and we've got a completely manipulative antagonist who throws this around and it 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 would seem to at this point be all ego and it's something we can get into more in the critology segment but i think that this is an episode that really is starting to explore men and power and the nature of Kilgrave and and responsibility lack of responsibility and things like that um so kind of a little little story seed planted here for for future use yes but this episode will be clear doesn't explore power man that's going to come a little later (laughs) with that pete we cut to jessica deleting pictures of luke and pete i know that she has so much going on in her past. I know that she has so much self-loathing. She has a sense of responsibility contrasting with a sense of self-preservation. But Pete, you know what makes it worse is that she's she's using a non-Apple computer. And to me, that's just <laughs> that's the straw that breaks the camel's back, where I say this the, the existence, the awful existence of this poor, this poor person. She does not have an Apple phone, she does not have an Apple computer. <sighs> My heart, Pete, my heart. Well, I was already heartbroken, but now it's just, it is too much. Yeah. There's an app, I'm sure, to fix that. But <laughs> um, she's she's worried here. She doesn't need reminders of what she did to Luke. Um, and even if it had good intentions. But it's here that Hogarth, um, you know, rears her head in the story yet again and she's on the phone with a client and jessica yet again barging into her office she's potentially settling a uh you know 500 or 50 million dollar settlement with a uh, a company over patents and poisoned pets and you know puppy killers etc and uh here comes jessica to get into it about uh, Audrey and wanting to confirm that uh, Desmond Toby is indeed a partner. Uh, can he be trusted? Is he linked to Kilgrave? Is somebody making her, him do this? And a, a great line, or rather a great pair of lines, uh, Jessica's told that she's coming across as paranoid. Yes. And her response is, it's like a conspiracy that it everyone is, says that. It's a total C-O-N-spiracy. Pete, with that, we cut to uh, Jessica on the on the trail of Audrey. She just happens to be wedged between two buildings, four <laughs> or five stories great. up. Yeah, wonderful visualization. Again, they're going as as low tech as possible. Um, obviously, a portion of set that they probably built. I doubt they did this outside, just because you know she's probably what five feet off the gr- the ground, and the camera is showing us the top four feet, that kind of thing. Um, but uh along with that visual you know we are 
we're we're tracking Audrey to make sure that um, that Kilgrave is not involved somehow. That twelve, maybe fourteen hours in between Kilgrave visits is what uh, is is what is needed for him to keep his constant hold. Ten to twelve hours, or the number she throws out for his voodoo. Just uh, yeah. Uh, well, around there, you know. <laughs> um, anyhow, uh, this is uh, interspersed with a call from Trish, um, and Jessica finds Audrey's life just just odd. And Trish has to explain, you know, she's probably compartmentalizing that that this isn't overflowing. It, this notion of her her failing marriage, Audrey's failing marriage, that that you know some people can compartmentalize and simply work harder at their professional job. Um, and I liked that interplay between the two friends where it's like, no, no, Jess, just because she's not handling it like you would doesn't mean that it's clearly a red herring. Right. And she gets in touch with Simpson here, asks him if he still wants to help. Uh, of course he does. It's a little illegal, however, which is where Jess feels the most comfortable, I think, um, getting at the police footage here. And, uh, you know, he's got her six, got my six. And I initially was like, okay, I get it. She needs the video and he's the NYPD guy. I I initially kind of said, not having any sense of how secure or unsecure this footage is to the NYPD or to, to, you know, your standard, uh, major metropolitan police department, um, the fact, you know, as we've discussed, that he is a sergeant, he is a little higher up there as opposed to, you know, I'm fresh out of cadet school. Sure, I'll log in and get your 30 hours of footage on a DVD. Um, it, it, it all works. Again, I kind of – I could care less as to whether, you know, with your standard sergeant login you could get it or if there's all sorts of hoops you need to go through. I, you know, I could care less. It's, it's narrative efficiency that he says, I'll get you that footage, and then the footage gets gotten. Um, I just feel better about it since he is a little bit higher up on the old food chain there. And then the footage of Jaron Hogarth and her Patamore, Pamela, uh, walking down the street, headed to a restaurant. Pamela's chatting on about picking out a vacation spot. Uh, Hogarth remains all business. Two more walk-ins as a result of the interview she did with Hope. But Pamela wants her Jerry back, please. They're going out to lunch. She didn't want to bring the office with them. And with that, um, because Pete, you know, you have to have uh, you have to have uh, some conflict here. Wendy is on her way out as uh, Jerry and Pamela are on their way in. And Pete, I I felt that this scene was a little forced. It's well performed. I by disagree. The Completely disagree. So Pete, you don't think it's kind of hand of the writer that that. Uh, Jerry is taking her new girlfriend to the place where she proposed to her wife. Not the way that it comes across, not that she forgot proposing, that she forgot where they went to. Um, The exposition that there was a diamond in the bottom of the tiramisu and everything. Wendy's motivation to attempt to show Pamela that... uh, So Pete, your argument essentially is that she's intentionally going to that restaurant to kind of uh, reappropriate the memories of the past. Or the places of the past? Uh, no, not not at all. Um, I think uh, the whole thing, the thesis of that discussion was that she's not getting the restaurant. This was Hogarth 
asserting her right to be able to bring whomever, uh, you know, here her next girlfriend, her next relationship to this restaurant with really great tiramisu. Well, we can agree on one thing, Pete. I think we can all agree, including the listeners out there. Great tiramisu. That's 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 tough to beat. Um, with that, we cut to JJ still tailing Audrey. Uh, Audrey, who's acting suspicious as she enters a building, a scuzzy building. Um, and it felt simultaneously like a setup, but it was so obvious that it was a setup that I started to doubt that it was a setup. Yeah, you know, the kind of out of place rock music going on. Um, and then you learn to muffle the sound of gunshots. Um, you know, she's got the, uh, the headphones on there as well, but, um, you know, felt a little, yeah, it it was that red herring type of thing where they were on 13 hours without, uh, Kilgrave's, um, you know, appearance to perhaps influence her, um, it still remains a little unclear how his, for me, the um, the instructions are delivered. Do they have to happen first in person, and then he's got this hold on you for a while, and he can he can do it from a further distance? Can he influence you initially at a distance? All things to chew over a little later on. What we do get out of this scene is that Audrey is uh, shooting those mannequins and uh, it's Jessica's conclusion that Audrey might be planning on shooting her husband. But as you mentioned, Pete, certainly the function of this scene to make it clear that uh, Kilgrave is out of the loop on this one. Yeah. And um, to get a text here from Hogarth, uh, Jess comes into her office and all these people that are lined up there claim that they had been mind controlled uh, since Trish went on the air and Hope's interview as well. Uh, You should have seen the ones they turned away, but perhaps some are legit. And uh, we're going to take a look at them now. Trish talks, uh, giving them the best alibi, the most popular alibi in the city. And Matt, there are some interesting characters here. There are, and it's such a great montage that they do um, because it. in the course of the montage, we kind of slowly start to wander uh, towards people who are going to make the cut, people whose, whose stories uh, seem to suggest that they've uh, dealt with Kilgrave. Uh, we start perhaps most, um, most pregnant with possibility is the pregnant virgin who... Uh, well, that's not where we start. Where, where do we start, Pete? Uh, well, Matt, you know me and my addiction to detail here. Our first uh, character, shall we say, is uh, one who was in a 7-Eleven. He was getting Doritos and he ran into a Chinese guy with glowing red eyes. Uh, indeed. And as I recall, Pete, uh, the Chinese guy made him steal some stuff. Uh, no, the Chinese guy made him want to jack the place, to rob it, Matt, at gunpoint. Uh. Then was Lucy, the nice girl virgin, um, who made, that Kilgrave made her do it. And you know, Kilgrave, the gardener, <laughs> that's his day job. I, I, I love that as we keep returning to this, uh, this pregnant virgin, um, the show slightly overplays it to, to to the benefit of we the audience, um, where you know she she clearly is uh, 
shall we say, a, a, a young lady who enjoys the lusts of life and all that. Um, we also get a man saying that someone came out of the water. I wondered Jones if Jones Beach, yes, from a meteor. I wondered if perhaps that was a reference to uh, Namor the Submariner. Um, Actually, it was a reference to the J.J. Abrams film uh, Cloverfield. <laughs> um, again, all these stories intercut with uh, with great, great local New York City actors, especially the Namor guy. It's just you just kind of buy the. I don't know. There's just something that you get from kind of these these bit part players um, in, in New York. I feel that just has such authenticity. Um, and we then should he, point out that prior to this montage, there was one other detail here: the the thread that never is followed up in this particular episode of the series, where Hogarth is calling in the favor uh, from Jess that she wants dirt on wendy that she's about to make the divorce very difficult and uh that favor from early on with hope being brought back into play as you mentioned pete not uh, addressed in this episode but uh something tells me that'll that'll be happening in the future um but back to the montage here again there's ridiculous stories there's some that sound legit and then um then there's a guy who mentions that uh, that there was a man with a British accent, a limey, and um, with that, Jessica takes a look at him. Hey, Pete, what color is he wearing? Purple. And uh, he, of course, had helped outfit Kilgrave. Uh, the introduction of the cello woman, too. Um, I, I love that she has this bandage on her finger. She says that she played and played for him until she made a mistake. Um I have to wonder if on the cutting room floor there's an explanation for the bandage, um, and if you know if for whatever reason they left addressing that. Um, I just kind of like the mystery of it. Is it that she just got a blister? Did he punish her more than that? You know, cut off part of your finger. Like I don't know what it is, but I like the mystery of it, and it speaks to his darkness. And it's one of these things where you don't need to explain every last detail. And as we separate the wheat from the chaff, we see those who made the cut. Uh, Claire with the cello, the gentleman who lost the $5,000 Xenia leather jacket, um, the woman who was made to smile for hours on end. And there's an even further human toll beyond the people we've seen Kilgrave influence already. With that, we uh, cut to the exterior of this meeting room uh, where Jessica says uh, that she wants to use these people to get to Kilgrave. Jerry instead calls it a gift. Um, and it- Yeah, that was an interesting exchange, which obviously ends with Jessica breaking the glass. So again, we're calling into question Hogarth's motivation and ultimate use of her tactics. I certainly would not be surprised if she ends up, you know, kind of getting getting revealed to be a baddie. But I think that thus far, we have enough where she's just being objective. I mean, she kind of has seen the bad that this guy can do, but not for nothing, Pete. She's a she, she's an attorney and clearly one that occasionally defends people who have done bad things. You know, she's not a uh, you know a tax attorney or, or or you know does property stuff. You know, I mean, it's. It's fighting with people who have killed puppies or killed parents or whatever it might be. Um, so I could see how she would view this as a gift that could fit into her world because she's somewhat separated from the badness that has occurred to these people. 
I love that the writing both addresses this is suddenly, oh, Kilgrave made me do it, and anybody can do that. Oh, I forgot to bring out the garbage. Kilgrave made me do it. It's already become a meme on social media, you know, a week and a half into this show being out. But simultaneously, it becomes a situation of, okay, questioning whether or not people will use this as uh, fake motivation as a reason for covering up uh, the horrible things they might do. Uh, it's it's smart writing in both directions. And Pete, uh, a line there as um, as kind of sides are drawn. The line from from Jessica, whose side exactly would that be? Yeah. Uh, certainly, kind of prescient given that uh, that this is the week when the uh, Captain America Civil War trailer has come out. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, I mean, as I, we know, it's all connected. Indeed, and I mean, not that this is setting up that movie, um, but certainly just a nice bit of um, you know the notion that that sides are going to be drawn, uh, and then Pete, the uh, the the lesson learned to not always have a uh, a fancy glass <laughs> wall for your conference room because uh, Jessica goes off on Hogarth and punches said glass wall. Yeah, it reminds me of the wall we used to have in our studio uh, until we reinforced it with that uh, that padding. But uh, out on the street, Jessica catches up with a civilian clothing clad Simpson who uh, has her movie, you know, 30 hours cast the thousands. You should get some popcorn again. Kind of in my notes, I say, hey, that was easy. Um <laughs> well, I mean, like, it's, it's kind of like, what do you want out of the story here? We could say there must be all sorts of things to prevent someone from doing this. And maybe that's true and maybe that isn't. A, we don't have the law enforcement background to to know it. B, I don't think we have an understanding completely of how high up the rank of sergeant is and how how well informed he is in the, in, in, you know, back at back at headquarters, that kind of thing. At the end of the day, hey, the story wants to put the footage into her hands for purposes of advancing the plot. He's clearly the best tool to do that. So, boom, now she has only 30 hours of Jessica Jones to watch. Yeah, which, I mean, come on, we have 13. I mean, who's got the easier job? Pete, do you think that in some alternate uh, reality or perhaps in some deleted scenes, does Jessica Jones do a commentary track podcast on the 30 hours of Jessica Jones Walks the Streets? Anything's possible. Hey, awesome. Um, with that, they're back at Jessica's apartment. Uh, Simpson attacks the uh, understandably troubled-looking Malcolm, although, my goodness, foreshadowing ahead of us here uh, you know hidden in hidden in plain sight um, well here he was only watching the ceiling melt that that is true but simpson has the opportunity to talk about paranoia and his fight or flight response and the notion that he is a survivor of uh, of of the kilgrave experience um which i thought was interesting because um that then leads to jessica mentioning that there is this quasi support group and they both immediately dismiss it I, Pete, mm-hmm. spoiler free, we'll call it uh, Chekhov Support Group, and I wouldn't be surprised <laughs> if uh, if uh, we see Will Simpson going to it. But certainly an effective scene where you know we are dismissing Malcolm, and the guy who is best prepared to see a bad guy sees Malcolm as such. 
um, particularly given where the episode ends. Right, which leads to Jess, you know, watching the video, looking at the photos, comparing them, um, you know, and, and now it's been turned around at her, what she was doing to Luke early on, you know, now she knows how it feels. While watching this footage, uh, she polishes off yet another bottle of wild turkey uh, whiskey. And um, I just kind of like the reminder here that she's kind of on the edge between superpowered person who, you know, if she wants to get a little, if she wants to unwind, she has to do so with a whole bottle where the rest of us it might be one drink. That's one end of it. Maybe she's a functioning alcoholic. Maybe she's a semi-functioning alcoholic. Um she I, does have that sufentanil, you know, that that she wants to ratchet it up. She might go there, but <laughs> I just I like how they are so willing to make her so flawed. Yeah, and when she runs into the little girl after this who asks her if she's Jessica, tells her that Patsy Walker is safe, you don't have to have to worry about her, you know, for now. And the, the questions, the here's the hero, Jessica, you know, who told you, um, you know, to say this, um, that there's a man who's done this. How old are you? She's eight and a half. And that Jessica regrets what's happened to her before this little girl lets loose with a stream of pseudo obscenities discussion about the bus here, about how uh, she left Kilgrave to die in the street like a dog that everybody you come into contact to, you make everything turn nasty. It's, it's just a nice, quick, um, easy yet awful reminder as to, as to Kilgrave's evil that he's putting these, uh, you know, these foul words into her mouth. Um, always interesting. You know, what's that discussion like behind the scenes? Like, Hey, we want an adorable, you know, kind of chubby faced girl, eight, nine years old, uh, has to be willing to say the this word and the that word. <laughs> Female dog, man. I That's mean, right. You know, has to be able to to hold up her own on the scene. And the, with and the S actress, word, you uh, know, depending on channel, is is said after a certain uh, time and day. So, you know, you don't need to. If this were Daredevil, she wouldn't even need to go to reconciliation. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. But looking to reconcile, seamless transition. Simpson calling Trish and here too, Pete, maybe you're going to disagree. I felt it was kind of like a slightly hackneyed scene. Yes. He's got something personal to give her, but it just seems to me like he's, he's kind of going back to this open wound. Of course, she's not going to open the door to the man who tried to kill her, despite the fact that she understands his motivation and his lack thereof. Um, that, that said though, Pete, the mystery box is put on the floor. Yeah, and for her to take it in, you know, he goes to the other side here. Wants she wants to know is this illegal? Um, and talking through the door there as a conversation ultimately goes on. I I really liked it. I liked you know her gradually letting her guard down to this character that she knows through Jess was under Kilgrave's influence. And in fact, let me let me slightly tweak my wording. The scene itself is not hackneyed. The the, the fact that he would come to give her uh, an off the books illegal pistol um, that 
I don't buy 100%. I buy 80%. That said, once he's there, the scene certainly works. And there's there's an odd, effective tension between the two of them and attention the to the scene. Um, when she holds the gun up through the door and we leave that way, you know, that, that was an effective cliffhanger um, given where we go and coming back later on. And that in and of itself is a great shot. It is, I suspect, two separate shots, one of him outside the door, one of her on the other side. They kind of stitch together to make it make it a pan that appears to be one shot. Interesting, Pete, that you read it as a cliffhanger. I did not. And I will certainly admit that there are, there's, <laughs> there's an unresolved uh, energy there, given that she's pointing a gun at him through the door. Um, I just kind of felt it as her kind of establishing her sense of territory and protection and whatnot. But uh, regardless, certainly uh, a moment to return to later. And tailing uh, Carlo now, um, you know, Jess through narration lets us know that Audrey was right. He's got the flowers. He's not headed out to a client. Um, And that all of her cases remind her why she is single. So this mournful, aspect to the character but uh she gets she's looking on the ledge there she thinks she could storm the gates and uh get the money shot but we ultimately find out that it's uh audrey in there between a shot of a woman uh quickly you know under the covers with uh carlo and then hearing the dialogue on the other side when she's taken the call from audrey eastman pete it's a nice uh it's a nice presentation here where i think the the exact nature of the mystery only gets revealed when we see audrey's purse um certainly the fact that something is up that there's mystery in the air is 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 made clear to us um i I like to the smallness of the world here it turns out that gregory spheris talked um audrey uh has, has a you know has a client who knows him so she's heard about jessica jones and the powers and the the laser eyes a nice return there to that line and audrey is looking for some type of retribution the gifted people who are gifted in the way mentally handicapped are called retarded um which wow i mean if that's not something that we as a society have 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 come to understand why the one phrase is acceptable and the other is not you know that's that's quick uh quick explanation there for which side of the fence we're supposed to view audrey um but then we get to audrey's motivation here the quote-unquote heroes are responsible for her mother's death her mother who died in the battle of new york and um jessica says that audrey should go after the big green guy or the flag waver not jessica yeah the the link up with gregory spheris from the first episode and that that's how she learned about Jessica's identity. So we deal with that before we get to the idea of her grudge against gifted, the slur, absolute slur that she just throws onto them by way of linking them with people who are mentally challenged to the point where Jessica asks, you know, what have we or the mentally challenged ever done to you to get this discussion about how the city was saved. It's referred to as an incident one time, which I think is being a little mild. 
um, you know, the, the battle of New York, but okay. Um, and you know, the, the identity checking of the Hulk and Captain America and everything there. But what really comes out of this scene by way of the conflict is what Jessica's been through, that they're not the only ones who have lived with pain, uh, that she lost her parents, uh, welcome to the club, uh, that they were lost in a random car accident, that she doesn't blame every lousy driver out there. And between throwing a chair, flipping the bed, and then ripping the radiator off of the wall and throwing that through the door, the bluff, Matt, that she knows 99, she has 99 friends in this borough alone who bear gifts. Um, pretty effective way to write your way out of what could have been a, a maudlin scene, particularly the way that the, the gifted are, are slurred. And I don't, I'm not faulting the writer there. In fact, I'm, I'm praising them to turn it around. You know, you make the villain one note, um, but to come out of it so well in terms of how they handle it. Yeah. Jess's response is poor, but to learn what we do out of her and to express her frustrations in such a way and to not harm either of them at the same time, holding to the hero's code. And you add to that, the fact that, that, that Jessica is not bulletproof, uh, which I think is an important development um, yeah. given that, you know, the, the writerly challenge to Superman has always been, he's so powerful that you need to come up with ways to make him uh, less powerful. You know, kryptonite being the, 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 the primary solution to that. So here we're still kind of defining what she can and can't do. Um, clearly she's got a contrast with Luke Cage and, and the power possibilities there just in terms of future writing and, I don't know, Pete, if they'll ever team up and, and, and that sort of thing. But, um, well, Matt, they have teamed up already. Well, I don't mean, I mean, outside the bedroom, Pete. Oh, oh right. And flagrante delicto. <laughs> um, but, uh, it's, it is, as you mentioned, Pete, it is, it is a smart writerly way out to say she has a couple options one is to just you know jump at these two and rip them apart you know uh, not quite the flavor of the show but to have this display of power while she's while she's you know telling audrey get out of the city disappear otherwise these 99 friends will come looking for you audrey um it certainly isn't an effective presentation as is um the next scene where we have jessica showering and we see that pretty decent cut from the bullet grazing her shoulder. And I thought, Pete, that that was a chance to kind of show her healing Wolverine style, but the show doesn't even do that. And I really appreciate the restraint. Yeah. There's one other thing bringing up that she would go to the cops as well. So not only the idea that she shows the restraint, but I'm going to put it in the hands of the people who will pursue this uh, from a, from a law enforcement standpoint, and and then you know the the zinger that Carlo wants now he wants the divorce <laughs> I thought was great but I want to point out 
subtle and not so subtle at the same time. So her left shoulder has suffered this gash. You know, she's she's had a cut on her temple and and one a little lower on her face, on her cheek for a little bit. And as the blood goes down the drain, we transition to the red eye, red T-shirt guy um, and his file, which I thought was an interesting link. I'm not quite getting your point there at, at the linking of the two. Well, that everybody was quick to maybe like dismiss this guy who was made to rob a seven 11 because he seems like he maybe was a little too hungry for Doritos, Matt. And instead, you know, we take the, the super serious cello player with the band aid and, you know, the attractive African-American woman who was victimized to smile and the guy with the the jacket, you know, they can't read minds like Kilgrave can. Who are they to know whether they've really got all of the victims? Certainly uh, something they can explore later on. And Pete, I like that with the next scene, we cut to Trish mid-story talking mm-hmm. about crazy fans who have given her dolls, presumably handed handed out buttons from their fan podcasts <laughs> or whatever. Um, there's also the reference to Trish's mom marketing the Patsy, uh, all the Patsy stuff for years, the Patsy dolls for years. Did I show you the, the spoiler Pete uh, voodoo doll? Uh, no, no, you did not. I need to show you that. Spoiler, I bet it doesn't work. <laughs> um, part of the the uh, success at this presentation that we're, we're mid-story here is the slow reveal that her, um, her back is to her door, and she's essentially back-to-back with, uh, with um, uh, Sergeant Simpson there, albeit with the door between them. And... Um, I like that clearly they want to reach a point where there's trust between the two of them, they being the storytellers. Um, and it's with this conversation that that happens. He talks about playing with his G.I. Joes to save his sister's Barbies. And, Burning uh, Barbie, Barbie dream house here. Okay. This was, this was an epic childhood, um, you know, play gone wrong future cop story. <laughs> Pete, you want to read any metaphor into there that we are burning Barbies in favor of uh, more masculine toys or just burning Barbies to remove the kind of perfect Barbie, you know, impossible, uh, impossible uh, type woman expectations, the expectation. Yeah. I think it speaks for itself. I didn't read it as overly symbolic. And we will now, make a huge statement about a toy that standards are unattainable rather than, okay, here's a boy who was playing with his, uh, his GI Joes and brought his sister's stuff into it and, uh, set it on fire. And what do you know? He becomes a, uh, officer of the law. I, I thought it really, really charming and, you know, like so much of this show smartly written. Besides, Matt, you know, the dream house had insurance. Pete, if nothing else, we've learned from this episode that it's important to make sure that uh, you have the proper insurance for things. Um, But Pete, the fire from the Barbie dream house is not the only fire going on in this scene. Uh, Finally, she opens the door. He is, after all, the kind of man who tries to save people. And Pete, there's a little bit of a of a fire between the two of them. At least at least I think that's where we're headed. Yeah. And, um, 
when uh, they're talking here that, uh, you know, the, the blame shouldn't be so heavy that it was done to Jessica as well, that uh, not even she could fight him off here. Um, trying to protect themselves is really the theme as we're closing the episode. With that, we cut to Jessica walking at night. She ends up kind of circling. She's letting herself being seen. Um, a, a quick scene, but one that certainly is evocative of her mental transition from from victim to someone who's fighting back. Uh, with that, we cut to Trish and Simpson having coffee at the table. And Pete, the camera starts to pan down. Her hands are on top of the uh, table. His are not. The camera starts to pan down. And I was convinced they were going to go below the table to show that he's taking out a gun or you know that something was going to happen but it's not shown and it's not shown for the rest of this episode um i know your spoiler pete i have seen <laughs> zero of the next episode i would be surprised if something isn't going to happen there like maybe we see that scene again but there's a reveal um if not then it's just a weird camera move that's moving towards showing you something but doesn't and and if i was the editor i would have uh, maybe tried to go for another shot that isn't in motion and suggestive of something got her hand on the gun albeit on the table and the joke in the previous scene about you know i might shoot you by accident um you know it would have been cliche to return to them and and now they're making out um these are two people who have you know felt Kilgrave's wrath uh both still fearful of it not in anywhere as great a position as Jessica to do anything about it. So, you know, you've got the one support group meeting here and you've got the other across town, Matt. Absolutely. It's Jessica attending the survivors group, but she's not attending, attending. She's made it clear to herself. I'm sure that she's there just for information. Well, Um, there's that slow reveal though, because we see her outside first and then it's the discussion, the the father talking about how uh, his son Avery was fussy going on about not bringing the action figures into the car. And then they stop at Herald square and Kilgrave opened the door and got in and that he is just consumed by his guilt that he was made to do the thing he thought to do and how that could be perhaps even more scarring than the random thing, you know, give me the jacket or, you know, whatever it might be that he hated himself because it was what he wanted and that his wife left him. And that we see Jessica come into the shot now in the restaurant makes it that much more intimate. And you add to it the fact that he completely understands why his wife is, you know, has left him um, because she does not understand the victim nature uh, of his situation. Um, But with Jessica uh, talking with him, there's reference to a photographer wearing a blue and white scarf. And this guy, in what I thought was a slight hand of the writer moment, he, I, I, I barely saw the guy. It was winter. Everybody was bundled up. He doesn't even say old, young, skin tone, nothing like that. It, I mean, obviously, they're kind of saving it for the for the reveal here. All they want is is to give us the blue and white scarf. Right. Um, but uh, with that, Pete, there's Jessica back at her apartment. It's it's uh, now morning. Um, she's looking through that footage. 
and I bet at this point, Pete, that it would be uh, that it would be uh, Sergeant Simpson. I was wrong. Spoiler alert. Yeah, some details I think important that she was meeting this guy 10 a.m. every day on the dot um, that he was, and you know to to get everything to come around. Screw therapy, Matt. Um, going through the video, the pictures she's drinking. And then it's Malcolm on the video and she's in his apartment. She finds the picture and we languish for just a second on a picture of him with his mother and then back to Jessica with a tear going down her cheek. Presumably she is crying not only at his loss, but her loss as well. What suspects draw our focus in this episode? Pete, let's start with Audrey. Really interesting, ultimately, in the sense of where her story goes. This powerful woman, she's got the money. We see her shooting the guns later on. And to turn it into what it is, that this is a bigotry-driven uh story for her um and and we see in the larger sense with the marvel cinematic universe that not everybody is into these gifted powered heroes if the goal for this episode was to mix things up a little bit to use the private eye aesthetic as a way to introduce a new character to do different twists and turns. I think it was completely effective. And if the goal yeah. was to have this case that lasts one episode, you know, mission accomplished hundred percent. It's, it's an absolutely compelling story. The metaphor of it is, is right on the surface there. And uh, it certainly is well done. I think we really need to include uh, Sergeant Will Simpson in the list here of suspects only because of the way he appears uh, initially in the episode, trying to break back into Trisha's home. He thinks that he's murdered her. The standoff, once he includes uh, the gun, um, gives that to Trish. And ultimately where we leave them, despite the disarming nature of their discussion about the the childhood, uh, you know, antics that... As Jessica says at the beginning of the episode, it's one word, it's one suggestion, and, you know, these people are weaponized. So, you know, we, we don't know about the, the repetition, the, the recidivism, if you would, of somebody that he's done this to being activated again. It certainly is an interesting line that the show is is walking on. I think there's been enough exposition, which is meant to be clear to us, the audience, that he's trustworthy. Uh, now, is that setting up a twist and turn in the future? Sure. Is it is it an attempt to have us push away from that um, that that suspect feeling that we have towards him? Uh, I suppose time will tell. But I like that they have done more with this character and kind of brought him more into the fold here you know a character as noted before who did not appear in the pilot um i i i like what he brings to the story matt how about hogarth the home wrecker pete you continue to be a little bit more down on hogarth than i do now certainly the fact that she's apparently from what we see so glib about the the 
deconstruction of her marriage, which probably is a result of her philandering. I mean, I think the vibe that we're supposed to get from Wendy, the doctor, um, is that is that uh, she's the aggrieved party, and that it's Jerry who is you know who has the wandering eye for the younger lady, and who's who's broken up the home and all of that. Um, that said, the notion that that the the battle between the two of them is starting to go uh, nuclear, and the fact that um, there's this very clear story thread that Jessica is going to um, almost certainly be digging up dirt on Wendy. Um, that gives the opportunity for a nice twist and turn there. I mean, Hogarth has been presented as nothing other than somewhat cool to all around her. To have that then turned around and say, no, Wendy is the true villain because blank. Um, I mean, there's plenty of story time to do that. We have, what, nine episodes left? They have to get from the beginning of the season to the end somehow, and rich character exploration certainly is a way to do it. She's also been the only character, and she's done it twice now, who's expressed any kind of interest in Kilgrave's ability for her own uses, which I think by association includes her on this list. As stated before, I'm a little less concerned about that, but I mean, if nothing else, the notion of having Carrie Ann Moss and David Tennant share a scene um, that almost is too alluring to not then write it and then to realize that that would be these two characters together um, and the possibilities there for 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 evil. Um, that's almost irresistible as well. So, again, spoiler-free, but I'll plant my flag in that one that that's where we're headed at some point. And lastly, Malcolm, somebody that we've only seen in a comedic or sympathetic light and now to see that he's been the one who's been uh, taking these pictures and keeping his eye on Jessica for Kilgrave. Well, I think that that gets to some larger issues that we'll discuss shortly in, uh, in the next segment. But what I will say about Malcolm here is it's a really um, sadly fun reveal. You know, it's fun if you're playing at home. Uh, it's sad if you're sympathetic for him as a real person. Uh, the notion that he's being so used, somebody who clearly is is not of his own proper faculties and somebody who clearly you know has a substance abuse problem. Um, I mean, he he's the sickest among them, and here he is being used uh, in a in a rather intimate way um, to 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 get you know get all these uh, snippets of Jessica's life. It's 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 a nice twist. Cryptology, where we uncover hidden messages and larger themes. And Pete, I'd like to start with this notion of the fact that we are presented here with a bunch of people who, despite what we might view them as, you know, if we were in their world, we would say, oh, this is a story. Or, you know, like they're, they're fabricating it. These are these are loonies. Or we would say, okay, so there's a really persuasive guy. You know, you you still made your decision. But we as the audience recognize that these are victims. These are victims that have been overpowered. And I think it places the show in a really interesting place just in terms of, you know, this is not somebody who is saying, I feel so darkly inspired by this person that I want to, you know, join a terrorist group or I want to go rain violence down on this group or that meeting place or whatever it might be. These are victims without um, without uh, a way out, essentially, who have been overpowered. 
Well, look at what they did with gentlemen in the restaurant at the support group at the end of the episode. They very smartly, the writers, flipped around this aspect, you know, particularly with sex abuse victims, that someone was asking for it, that he wanted to silence his child, that, you know, the idea that any parent could feel like, all right, just shut up, stop with the crying, whatever it is, and that it happened and how he feels over that, I think gets into some very interesting discussion as far as what has happened to these people and the level of violation that's taken place. Yeah, I am left with only one conclusion that they are really trying to hammer home this as a metaphor for sexual abuse and sexual assault. Um, for my for my own thinking, I can't come up with another situation where um, your actions don't make you complicit in the act. You know, I mean, again, this is not. Oh, I feel so inspired. I'm going to join a terrorist group, and you have some hand in in understanding that. This is not, as we referenced in other episodes, Patty Hearst, who still is going to be held uh, accountable despite despite brainwashing to a certain degree. Um, this is just an outright overpowering. So I, the only conclusion, as I said, I can reach is that that's the metaphor that they're going for. Yeah, I mean, we look at it in the context of that montage with possible victims and out of left field people you know the guy who was made to grab the purple staff and slide his hand up and down um everything there from the playfulness of that exchange to the seriousness of the people we're watching without confirmation that we can piece things together that they were victimized opens all of it up as a possibility. Matt, I want to talk about Jaron Hogarth, her practice, the the kind of run that she's on right now. She's picked up, obviously, these additional people coming in as, as victims, as potential clients. At the same time, she's managing a, you know, $50 million uh, lawsuit settlement and everything. And the idea and you know, to its discredit of lawyers looking for the angles, attempting to profit off a lot of these things. But just everything going on with her practice here, I feel like there's a, there's a much larger game being played. Well, it certainly is low-hanging fruit to say, you know, the damned lawyers, kill all the lawyers, all of that. I think it's worth keeping in mind that those who work in the business of of advocating for others, whether it's a lawyer, whether it's advocating for someone's health as as a doctor, they have the the noble calling, and there's also the business necessity of you're here, you know, you are in business in in both cases. Um, so I think that the fact that she's able to operate with um less of the kind of uh you know the the angel doctor who you know it's it's er they're there to work 14 hours to resect that bowel because it's saving a life you know it's a little less obvious the the, the service that, that a lawyer provides in terms of you know the purity with a capital p 
That said, she's running a business. She is the first partner, the first named partner, um, and not alphabetically, mind you. So she's presumably, presumably the, 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 the power of the three, if you will. Um, so there are business considerations to take into. Just, the, you know, if she was in charge of uh, Catco Media, you would, <laughs> there wouldn't be the same condemnation of, oh, she's looking to grow the business. Now, I understand there's also a difference there. Selling more ad time is different than I want to get the next big settlement because I'm, I'm looking to – I'm looking to land the whale of a settlement and screw all the people who might get get rolled over. Um, again, I'm just a little bit more sympathetic because she is a businesswoman in addition to being a to being an advocate for people legally. Well, her angling on Kilgrave's gift and putting that in the context, the larger context of gifted individuals within this Marvel cinematic universe and what that all means for the day-to-day life. You know, these Netflix Marvel shows are understandably more gritty than the films, uh, even than their broadcast television counterparts than Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. or Agent Carter. And, you know, people, what would people attempt to do were these things to manifest themselves in the real world well there would be people out to profit um by human nature understandably i think from that and um you know when when you get the realization towards the end of the episode that that malcolm's been drawn into this that we see a picture of his mother that there's some idea that there could be leverage um you know plus the fact that He's obviously more than we've let on to at this point, I think really underscores a lot of different potential motivations. Well, to speak to your point as to how people in general would respond to this, uh, which I guess brings us back to Audrey as as the example of it, it it occurs to me that it's it's probably quite a downer to live in that world. And to be a to be a normal person, you know, you think of if there's the aspirational story that we in our world hear of the soldier who doesn't leave a comrade behind. Well, if you want to be that person, or if you aspire to that way of life, go enlist. Uh, if, if you are so, uh, you know, inspired by the uh, the surgeon who saves lives, go, you know, join medical school. Go, go, try and be that person. If you want to be a an Iron Man. You just need to be a billionaire. Well, that's kind of a downer. If you want to be a Thor, you have to be born somewhere else. That's a downer too. So I think that it's an interesting notion that these people are not necessarily inspired by the heroes. Or or there's a limit to where that inspiration can go because it's unobtainable. Let's check our mail drop. Here's what you have to say. Matt, first up, we have a comment left on our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash fantastic geek with the PH, all one word. And Duran Sentinus writes in, I really enjoyed this series and even more was seeing David Tennant being all evil and manipulative. Had me thinking, it says if him, I believe Duran meant of him returning to Doctor Who as either the Veil Yard or the next incarnation of the Master after Missy. 
I don't know what any of these things mean. Matt will translate in a little bit. It would be awesome to see him in either of those roles. And I am disappointed that we won't get to see him as Kilgrave going up against the Avengers. Done right, it would have made for an awesome mind trip of trippy kind of movie for sure. I think that uh, as we've discussed in the various podcasts before, there seems to be a little bit more of a wall between the film side and the TV side for Marvel. Uh, Some of the various goings on also internally within the company. Marvel Films has actually now been spun out completely from the Marvel umbrella and is its own thing uh, with its own kind of operational structure and all that. Um, Hopefully that does not get in the way of great storytelling opportunities, uh, particularly as the the TV end heats up. You know, we, we have more info in the news Recently about uh, movement on the Iron Fist front and obviously the Luke Cage show is in the middle of filming Uh, more Daredevils on the way more Jessica Jones. I don't think there's been an official announcement, but I think it's safe to assume there's more Jessica Jones on the way. So I guess time will tell to see who can kind of where all the crisscrossing can occur. Matt, we have received two new reviews on iTunes since our last podcast. The first comes to us by Dr. Handy. Uh, Five-star review. The headline is Marvel's Best Work Yet? Question mark. And it is quite a lengthy review. Um, I do need to edit it. Uh, Matt's been told not to read it because it contains spoilers for the rest of Jessica Jones. I would caution our listeners as well, but I will, I have edited the heck out of here to give you the general idea. So Dr. Handy writes, thanks guys. You drew me in with your methodical and intelligent agent Carter podcast and your agents of shield podcast. I binge watched the whole season of JJ and this week have been enjoying, been so enjoying your two podcasts discussing it. Uh, we say that as we're now um, recording our third, of course, or our fourth. Uh, I love how carefully you survey the plots and how intelligently you handle the acting, camera work, and connections to the comments, to the comics. I look forward to many more and only wish we had 13 more episodes and more of your podcasts to listen to. I actually found that since this show's structure is dense, having the podcast and your familiar voices to help me revisit each show is the best accompaniment for me working on a Christmas ukulele I'm building for my nephew. I think this show is way better than Daredevil. K.R. Kristen Ritter, he's referring to, evokes much more compassion than Daredevil, who I like but his big drive to clean up Hell's Kitchen can't compete with the stakes of her arc, trying to keep Mr. Purple from messing with her and perhaps the whole world, which he could do. Her broken, damaged vulnerability makes her a whole new kind of heroine and is a man who's known many victims, many women victims of abuse from men. She's a very useful analogy for a modern woman. Although I love Supergirl's winsomeness, I know, I know, I just lost you there. Having such a great emotionally bottom-feeding girl to watch makes it all work. Plus, two things make this show superior to, perhaps, any other Marvel hero show or film. The first 
uh, here's where we're going to cut off Uh-oh. <laughs> a little bit, Matt, uh, in terms of uh, what we do. I just want to warn you, I will shift on the fly. The first is that the violence she commits is always necessary to aid her healing and recovery. I'll let, I'm sorry, I'll uh, watch Jet Li or Jackie Chan all day because they're artists with violence, but so much other violence in films and TV amounts to fake, unnecessary, junior high, MMA, that's, uh, that's mixed martial arts, of course, for those not familiar, posturing with dubbed punch, FX, explosions, and bone crunch noises. Uh, it looks like the violence I acted out with my G.I. Joes when I was eight. Silly. But the violence in J.J. is usually simple violence and is always emotionally charged action that serves the story. And, like Black Widow's best work, is designed for a woman's body and approach. Okay, so here's where I'm editing out because completely spoilerific stuff for those of you who are not done with the show. If you are, you just go to iTunes and check out this review and then leave your own glowing review and, and we'll read that next time. <laughs> um, the other thing is that for as vile as her world and her world view are, there's very little swearing, which at first I thought seems odd, but I respect the writers and characters more because the setups can be so Hitchcockian. And then there's specific stuff going forward to another episode that we're not going to get into. Okay. Um, Got to see over time, but this might be the best single piece of work Marvel's put out. Tenant wipes the floor with D'Onofrio's whiny fat boy in Daredevil. I hope he didn't hear that. <laughs> And we enjoy watching Tennant's rage of emotions from bitter annoyance. And then there's a quote from a later episode we're not going to uh, say. Then there's an act from a later episode we're not going to talk about. <laughs> um, then I can continue. It's like Faust. He and JJ could actually control the world and solve most of its problems. And we didn't need explosions or CGI or latex costumes to internalize that. In this sense, our golden age of TV may actually be approaching from an art form rather than just being entertainment or pulp. I'm pretty sure that if Euripides, Dickens, or Shakespeare could have used raw sexuality and violence like Marvel is here, they would have. Anyway, thanks for your patience and your podcast. It's your best yet, and I can't wait for more Agent Carter. Wow, certainly not only uh, appreciations there for the praise towards us, but I mean, uh, he has certainly advanced the discussion there. I mean, Euripides and Dickens, etc. That's uh, that 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 certainly is a credit to the show and a credit to the uh, the issues that it's exploring. To credit to our listeners, Matt, that we have people that are making these types of multimedia connections with ostensibly a, um, a comic book property 
I'll just respond to one other thing that he said. Uh, no, he did not lose us in, in making a reference uh, to the Supergirl series. I think that 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 shows one buoyant, optimistic, happy perspective of life in general, of of uh, a woman starting her professional career, realizing her potential. That's kind of you know a, a positive look. Jessica Jones obviously taking a, a darker look, and I think both are. I mean, both are are entertaining. Obviously, Jessica Jones is a deeper show, uh, a more grounded show. Yeah. But I think that both both have a place to kind of have these larger issues of gender and and uh, one's hope and oneself and things of that sort. So uh, I'm, I'm I'm on board with him making those references. Our final review comes from Phil Boots. The headline is Great Job, Guys, Great Show, Five Stars, and it reads, Not knowing Jay Jones from the comics didn't keep me from trying the show. I was told was daredevilish. You guys are a perfect companion to the show without all the OMG attitudes. So many other podcasts drivel out. Good insight and nice buildups without spoiling too much. Telling me the cop character would figure in more episodes equals spoilerish, but I forgive. Love your daredevil work too. Both of you come off very professional without giving, I'm sorry, while giving a good buddy vibe. Well, thank you for those kind words. I would disagree slightly that it's spoilery that uh, that uh, Simpson would appear in future episodes. The guy, the guy is credited in the in the credits there. But uh, aside from that, glad that um, glad that the approach that we've always taken with the Fantastic Geek podcasts, which is we're going to be enthusiastic, we're going to be intelligent about it, but we're never going to turn into fanboys. We're never going to excuse away things that are that are less than great. Um, that's, that's, that's what we do. And we know that not everybody's for that. Some people want to spend three hours, you know, squeeing or cursing or whatever it might be. Um, squee cursing. Exactly. Squirsing. There we go. Um, but, uh, we're glad that, uh, we're glad that there's people out there who, who are of the same mindset as us. So thank you. Thank you. And with that, Matt, let's, uh, let's give a little back. Indeed, Pete, I have the first giveaway here, the first comic book. It is in my hands as we speak. Uh, you have the names in the hat. Are you ready, Pete? I am. I will reach in right now and draw. I hope it's and... me, Pete. What's that? I, I hope it's me. <laughs> and the first Jessica Jones uh, featuring Daredevil uh, comic goes to Dr. Handy, congratulations. Would have been worth it just based on that review alone. Indeed, indeed. Everybody got one vote. If he got uh, if he got multiple votes for, for the volume of words, uh, well, that, that just wouldn't have been fair, but a, a good bit of luck He did reference the Dickensian model. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we'll certainly be in touch. And if you did not hear your name, worry not. We have two more comics to give away uh, for Episodes 5 and Episode 6. So please get those iTunes reviews in. And uh, do do be in touch uh, to share your name on iTunes um, with us just so we can uh, be in touch, uh, you know, before the before the uh, announcement is made and before we say, I don't know who that was, be in touch and, and somebody won't usurp you. And Pete, speaking of being in touch, let's start to talk about those various uh, contact deets. How can people be in touch with you on the Twitter? 
You can find me at Peter, P-I-E-T-E-R, J, Ketelar, K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R, 6,740 followers. Can't be wrong. And while I am personally on Twitter, as Looking Back Lost, you can be in touch with the podcast in a bunch of ways. First is the uh, listener line. You can leave a message for up to two minutes uh, on our Google Voice voicemail number, 732-707-1815. You can also be in touch with Fantastic Geek. That's Fantastic with a PH on our Gmail.com and Twitter. All Fantastic Geek, all one word. And Pete, is that all? No, facebook.com forward slash fantastic geek. Again, all one word with the PH, just another way to reach out and interact with us. Indeed. Now, if you're listening to this on the pop culture podcast feed that gets all our podcasts uh, in that in that one source, we'll be back on Tuesday, Wednesday, Tuesday night, Wednesday morning with Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. If you're listening to us uh, on just the Jessica Jones podcast, we will talk again next uh, Thursday. And uh, Pete, I can't believe we're already we're on the cusp here of episode 105 and uh, we're, we're chugging along through this thing. We are, you know, I, I was looking at the schedule where we're scheduled to finish up with uh, S.H.I.E.L.D. Uh, two more weeks there before what they call their winter finale, before the winter has actually begun. And then um, right up to the final day of the year, um, New Year's Eve with Jessica Jones and a couple days off before it's it's Agent Carter time. So. Yeah, and uh, sprinkle, uh, you know, just a little Star Wars in there. You know, whatever's going on. <laughs> oh, it, it, is there a Star Wars thing happening in December? Um, well, for you there is, Matt. Uh, some of us might have already been to the top of the mountain, and it is good. <laughs> well, that, Pete, I will say adios to all our listeners and give you the final word. So I, I didn't want to tell people what happened in this show, but somebody made me want to do it, and I, I couldn't fight it anymore.